Okay, so welcome back to Bible Journey, and today we are continuing our discussion of the Acts of the Apostles, and today we're talking about uh, chapters 16 through 18 of the book of Acts. And um, I gave you a handout on a chronology of Paul and the life of Paul, and you'll notice that I called it a chronology, not the chronology. I don't claim that this is the last word. Um, there's uh, you know, healthy scholarly debate over when things happened. Uh, this is my take on the chronology of Paul's life, um, and it's not going to differ too much from other scholars, but, you know, uh, plus or minus a year here and there. At any rate, having said that, with that little disclaimer in mind, um, according to my chronology, uh, we are looking today at Paul's second missionary journey, and you have, a, you have maps uh, in that little book that you're using for the text of Acts, so you can always refer to those maps as well. But uh, we're looking at Paul's second missionary journey, Asia Minor and Greece, as the gospel expands outward, and we're talking about the years 50 to 53 of the first century. So, so that's where we are. We're, we're about exactly two decades out after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how old Christianity is, 20 years. Um, and so uh, remember that you know, most of the earliest Christian writings are, that we know of, that we have, are the letters of Paul. And so I'm trying to put those into the timeline as well. So Paul sets out on his second journey with Silas. And here we have uh, two icons. That's Paul on the left and Silas on the right. Um, these are not photographs, so um, we don't necessarily know exactly what they looked like. But there is a, there is a consistent iconography uh, for Peter and Paul. So usually if you see Peter and Paul, you can tell them apart because Paul is the one who is bald or balding and with a dark colored beard. And Peter is usually depicted more as having uh, white curly hair. Um, so anyway, that's Paul on the left, Silas, or also called Silvanus in the letters. Same person, Silas and Silvanus. Um, Silvanus. Well, it's, I mean, it just depends on how you want to pronounce it. Um, they wouldn't have pronounced the letter A, like a long A the way we do. So it would, it would be closer to Silvanus probably. Um, but yeah, that's, it's S-I-L-V-A-N-U-S. And, and so when you see Paul mention a Silvanus in the letters, that's who he's talking about. And this is again a, a, a case where people have two names, probably a Jewish name and a Roman name. Um, so, he st they start out by passing through some of the cities of Asia Minor that they've already visited. And again, this, uh, unfortunately this map isn't great, but, um, but here we have some of the cities where they've already been. And then Paul meets Timothy. Here's an icon of St. Timothy. Now, notice in these icons, many of these, um, these characters in the book of Acts are, are depicted as bishops. See, that's the, um, you know, the, the, the stole with the crosses here is saying that he's a bishop. And so a lot, of these, um, a lot of these early leaders of the church are depicted as uh, those who were bishops after the apostles. Um, so he's certainly not a bishop yet. And in many ways, the office of bishop, as we know it, doesn't quite exist yet anyway. But you get the idea. Um, the interesting thing about Timothy is that he is, he is described as already being a disciple. Um, 
Timothy's mother is a Christian, but his father is described as Greek. And so that means the fact that Timothy's father is a Gentile means that he's not circumcised. I'm sorry we have to talk about circumcision so much. Um, I'm just as uncomfortable talking about it as you are. But uh, it is what it is. So, (laughs) So Paul wants to take Timothy with him. And what does he do? He makes him get circumcised. Now, here he is delivering the letter from James of Jerusalem about circumcision and about how it's not required for salvation, yet he makes Timothy get circumcised. And so um, there seems to be uh, a bit of an inconsistency here. And I think it could be argued that both Peter and Paul have their inconsistencies on this issue. Um, But uh, one of the things you have to remember is, you, you know, you may be familiar with a rule that uh, if your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. Heard that one? Yeah. Well, there's really no evidence that that rule existed at this time. So we have to assume that that comes in later. And so at this time in history, whatever your father is, is what you are. And certainly, when it has to do with a thing like circumcision, the father will control whether or not a person is circumcised. So everybody knows... They just know Timothy is not circumcised. And so so Paul decides that he needs to get circumcised. Um, But I think we have to keep in mind that that this is not done because Paul thought that Timothy needed it for salvation or that it was required to be a Christian. Um, He's already considered a disciple. So keep in mind, the circumcision is not to become a Christian. He's already considered a Christian. He's already considered a disciple. It's done for the credibility of the mission. And in fact, if you think about it, if you're a missionary going around preaching that people don't need to be circumcised and everybody knows that you're not, they might see that as part of your motivation for preaching that, right? And so in a way, you know, he sort of has to do it for for the credibility of his message. At least that's what Paul decided at the time. Now nobody can say that Timothy has his own personal agenda um, for promoting this not requiring circumcision thing. So, um, now, you know, I don't want to be too hard on Paul as if, you know, he's doing whatever it takes. You know, I, I'm not saying that Paul is, is thinking that the end justifies the means and just do whatever it takes, but he does seem to make concessions for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of evangelization. In fact, Later, he will write to Timothy, if in fact we assume that Paul wrote the letters to Timothy, um, later he will write uh, about the roles of women in the church. And it's stuff that makes a lot of people today uncomfortable, right? Um, But again, these instructions, uh, for the most part, are taken not as sort of, you know, timeless instructions for all time, but as concessions to the culture for the sake of the gospel. And so... Uh, because, you know, if we look at other places in Paul's writings, he clearly has a respect for women, and there are clearly some women who appear to be leaders in the church on some level, and we're going to meet some of them. So uh, if, you know, Paul's instructions on whether or not women ought to speak up in church seem like a, taking a step backward uh, from that, I think it's because, again, he's making a concession to the culture for the sake of the gospel. So, um, having said that, uh, let's move on. Now, as they go on, 
They are guided by the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen this, and it's not exactly clear what this means. Sometimes we're told somebody has a dream or a vision, but in this case, we're not told that. So we don't know if there's a dream or a vision, or simply that some obstacles were put in their way that were interpreted as God's providence. God is preventing us. The Holy Spirit is preventing us from doing this. And um, in the reflection questions, I asked you to think about what this says about God's guidance in our lives, what it says about providence, and what it says about human free will. And you know, I don't claim to have a right answer in mind, but it begs the bigger question, I think, of faith in general. You know, how do we deal with setbacks? Things that we perceive are setbacks. I have, you know, in my own life, I've had things that looked like setbacks and turned out later to be a blessing in disguise. And it's easy to say, oh, thank you, God, for preventing me from making the wrong choice. Uh, but there are other times when God didn't prevent me from making the wrong choice. So how do I deal with that? Um, you know, what's that expression? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> Now, to be honest, I don't really like that expression because I think it's just a little bit too flippant and it's a, it's, it, it makes God seem a bit mischievous. Um, but, I, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe God is mischievous. And, and, you know, maybe mischief from our perspective is something else from God's perspective. But I just want to encourage everybody, you know, we all need to take a step back and think about what we believe God does in our lives versus what our personal responsibility is. Um, I certainly would never say that God does not intervene in our lives to protect us from things, to guide us in one direction or another. But then there are always cases where God um, maybe doesn't do the things we wish God would do in terms of giving us guidance. And so we just have to deal with that and have to think about what faith means to us in light of that. Because there is still an element of mystery here but as I always say, if there weren't mystery, it wouldn't require faith. So, something to think about. Alright, so the group goes to the coast. And um, this is uh, a map of, uh, here's the, the western coast of Turkey, eastern coast of Greece. So you can see the coastal towns. This is Troas here. And um, at Troas, the group is joined by our author, uh, Luke, oh, this is Troas, this is what it looks like now. It actually looks kind of cool. Um, here's Luke, here's Luke's icon. Notice again, um, the ones who are associated with Scripture are usually depicted holding a Bible. So because Luke is traditionally the author of the Gospel and the book of Acts, he's there holding a Bible to remind you of that. Um, and now, you know, you can always, you can see when Luke is, is with the group because he speaks in the first person plural. We went down to the coast. We got on a boat. We did this. So watch for the word we in the text and you'll know when Luke is, is giving you a first-hand account of events. Um, so now Paul has a vision or a dream or some, something where he sees a man from Macedonia inviting him, saying they need his help. Uh, now, Macedonia, this, again, this map is not that good. I'm going to have to stop using this map. But Macedonia here is in the pink. It's sort of, um, think of it as uh, northern Greece. But now, ancient Macedonia is parts of Greece, 
the Republic of Macedonia, I think that's what it's officially called, Bulgaria, Albania, and Serbia, parts of all of these things. Um, but at any rate, this is where Paul is called to go. How he knows the guy is from Macedonia is not clear, but you know how it is with dreams. Sometimes you just know stuff, and that's not really the point. The point is to get there. And, um, and again, this is one of those places where we hear the voice of Luke, and he says, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. So they sailed over to Macedonia, which from Troas up to here, and made their way to Philippi. Uh, First Neapolis would be the port, and then inland to Philippi. And Philippi is, of course, the city where the Philippians live. The letter to the Philippians that Paul's going to write later is going to be a letter written to people he will meet there. Uh, This is the coast of Macedonia. And here we are at Philippi. And I'm showing you pictures of the way it looks today. Uh, Well, obviously, because there aren't pictures of the way it looked then. But... um, But so you can see some of the ruins of the, of the uh, you know, Roman buildings, and this would have been like you know, the town square. So this would have been the kind of place where Paul would meet people. And you know, if you were to go there today, you'd literally be walking where Paul walked, as you can in Rome, if you come to Rome with me. Um, so they go to Philippi, and they heard that there was a place of prayer. Now, it's easy to read past that in the text and just think, oh, some people gathered to pray. But a place of prayer is kind of um, a term to imply that there's no synagogue in this town, so they have something that sort of is, is their place of prayer, but it's not technically a synagogue. Philippi was a veteran colony. In other words, um, this was one of the places where the Romans, when, when soldiers retired from the military, one of the kinds of rewards they got was land. And this would, was one of the places where they got land, and so they'd go to settle And so um, most of the inhabitants of Philippi would have been Gentiles, Romans, and soldiers, former soldiers. Um, But some of those soldiers had Jewish wives. And so the place of prayer, so there's not enough men in town, there's not enough Jewish men in town for a synagogue. But there's a place where women go to pray. And it's referred to as the place of prayer. Um, And... It is there that the group meets Lydia. Now, here's an icon of St. Lydia. Lydia is described as a worshiper of God. So she may not be Jewish. She may be one who, is, who has come to believe in the Jewish God, maybe through her friends, other women in the town, um, but, uh, but she's most likely a Gentile. And as you know in the story, she and her whole household were baptized. And this is the St. Lydia Baptistry. This is uh, on the site. It's, uh, and it's actually uh, similar architecturally to the baptistry at St. John Lateran in Rome. So um, she and her whole household are baptized and her house becomes the first house church in Philippi. And so you know, I want you to keep that in mind for later when we talk about church leaders. It's not clear to what extent Lydia would be considered um, a leader in that church, but clearly she seems to be the the owner of the house that is the house church. And so in some sense, she would have been, um, you know, she, she would have been a leader in that, in that group. In, uh, in Philippi, Paul encounters 
a possessed girl. This is a picture of Paul going to visit the possessed girl. <laughs> it's actually a picture of uh, from The Exorcist, for those of you listening at home. Um, the, the iconic... You know, guy with the brief, priest with the briefcase and the hat. Um, but okay, so Paul and Silas encounter this possessed girl, and she's actually making money. She's a slave girl, and she's making money for her owners by telling fortunes. And uh, they cast out the demon, and guess what? No more ability to tell fortunes. So that makes the owners angry. And um, Paul and Silas get in trouble. And they are, it says, beaten with rods. Now, here's another phrase that it's easy to pass over without thinking about. They're beaten with rods, okay? There's a caning. Um, but this is a standard punishment. And you, this picture here is what's known as the fascists. Um, you may have seen this icon or this image associated with the Roman state. It is uh, literally an axe with rods bundled around it. And um, it is a symbol of the state's authority and power of capital punishment and corporal punishment. So the state has the authority to beat you and execute you if you get out of line. And this symbol was meant to remind people of that. So it was a symbol that's carved on things, but it's also something that was physically carried around by attendants of the emperor to, again, remind everyone of the emperor's power to put you to death if you didn't um, uh, conform. This is actually where we get the word fascism from. Uh, So anyway, so these are the fascists. Um, So Paul and Silas are beaten with rods and then imprisoned. This is the so-called prison of Philippi, uh, what it looks like now. This is supposed to be the site where Paul and Silas were imprisoned. Here's a painting of them praying in the stocks. Did you notice it says their feet were put in stocks? So, um, So when you see a picture of you know, Paul and Silas with their feet in stocks. This is what it's talking about. This is the being imprisoned in Philippi. Is it not an elaborate headdress for Paul or Silas? Well, stocks. I mean, it looks like a centurion. Um, I think there. I, I think Paul in okay, this particular. Yeah, yeah. The, the, well, Paul in this particular painting is probably depicted like he's dressed like a Pharisee more than anything else. But this is, you know, this is a later painting. I mean, you know, when, once you get into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, you know, the people in the paintings dress like they lived in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So, you know, you, you see these beautiful Florentine paintings of the Magi adoring the baby Jesus, and the Magi are dressed like the Medici, right? I mean, they're dressed like Florentines. That's just what they did. So, um, now, why were they imprisoned? The charge was advocating non-Roman customs. Advocating non-Roman customs. In other words, um, trying to encourage people to abandon their Roman traditions. Which, to be fair, is exactly what they were trying to do. They're trying to encourage people to abandon the traditional, the worship of the traditional Greco-Roman gods. And this is going to be a key um, issue for the Romans. Because the Romans are polytheistic. And, you know, while they, they, they would have looked at Christianity with suspicion anyway, because it was seen as something new. But what really made it scandalous was not that, you know, Christians were asking people to add another God to their pantheon. Hey, Jesus is God too. Why don't you worship Him too? 
They weren't doing that. They were saying, worship Him, worship God only, and abandon all the other gods. That became the issue. So, again, we get a miraculous release from prison. But this time, to run would have been to condemn the guard to death. And so the guard is so happy that they didn't run away. Um, And the guard asks what he must do to be saved. Here's another painting. Uh, This one's a little bit more cartoony. But anyway, um, there's the guard. And now here they're just dressed in, you know... um, well, it looks like a bath towel, but it's, it's sort of a, a loincloth or whatever. But uh, here's the guard asking, what must I do to be saved? And it's interesting because, you know, this is not the first time we've heard this question in the book of Acts. And Peter and Paul's answers are consistent, but slightly different. Um, Peter's answer was more right to baptism. What do I need to do to be saved? Get baptized. Paul's answer is more to the believing. Now, of course, it's both for Paul because after you believe, you get baptized. So that's, he's not leaving that out. But, um, but notice what, what Paul says. What, 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 do you want, what do you have to do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, here we see the validity of household faith or vicarious faith. Um, the validity of baptizing a whole household, including children. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So, uh, when they are finally released, Paul plays his Roman citizenship card and demands an apology. How bold is that? Demands an apology and the officials have to apologize to them, but then they ask them to leave. So, Passing through a couple of smaller towns, they come to Thessalonica, or in Greek, Thessaloniki. And again, this is where we, uh, will, where we would meet the Thessalonians, the ones to whom the Thessalonian letters are written. Um, the group stays in the house of someone named Jason, we learn. I looked for an icon of a Saint Jason, but couldn't find one. Who knows, maybe, uh, maybe there's one out there. But here in Thessalonica, there is a synagogue. And it says Paul stayed and debated there three weeks. Um, now again, notice how even though we, we, we always think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, he first seeks out the Jewish believers in a town. This is, this is his MO for now. Um, okay, so there's a mob riot and Jason and his household are attacked. But this time the charge is not simply advocating non-Roman customs. This time the charge is that the missionaries are saying that there is another king besides Caesar. And to be fair, they were saying that. That's exactly what they were saying. That when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying he's Lord and not that guy in Rome. All right. So our um, heroes have to skip out at night and move on to the next town. But you know, notice, we also have this image of you know, Paul starting churches, making converts, but he seems to find believers already there almost everywhere he goes. Next, the group comes to Berea. Oh, by the way, here's Thessaloniki, what it looks like now. I love that picture. I did not take these pictures. I've not been there. Um, all right, so back to the map. Berea is here. Berea, you will see, sometimes spelled with an O stuck in there somewhere. 
uh, just an alternate spelling. Uh, I think both are correct. In Berea, there is also a synagogue, and the Bereans are praised for examining the scriptures. In fact, on that basis, there are, uh, there's at least one denomination of, of Christians who call themselves Bereans based on that. Uh, so they're praised for examining the scriptures. And in the reflection questions, I asked you to think about you know, times that you've had arguments over the meaning of scripture. And we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating that, that you know, the obvious fact that two people can look at the same scripture passage and disagree about the meaning of the scripture demonstrates that the issue is not in the words on the page, but in the interpretation. And so this is why we need the tradition of the church along with the scriptures. Uh, I mean, technically speaking, the scriptures are part of the tradition of the church. But in addition to that, um, the tradition of the church gives us the... um, authoritative interpretation of scripture so uh, you know so that we can be on the same page actually I, I have a new book out called Trinity 101 uh, so I'll apologize for the commercial but I deal with this exactly because um, when I talk about the tradition of the church the thing that pops into my head first when I say tradition with a capital T is the creeds and especially the Nicene Creed because the Nicene Creed was written specifically because people were reading the same scriptures and getting two different interpretations. And so the Nicene Creed becomes the official authoritative interpretation of scripture. And this is why we say the Nicene Creed at Mass. So Trinity 101 is about the doctrine of the Trinity, but it also goes through every line of the Creed and explains it. So if you still don't know what consubstantial means, you can look at that. But anyway, um, you know, that, that's what I mean when I talk about tradition. That we need tradition, we need the creeds. I see a hand, there's a question. Yes, Sandy. Yeah. Uh, what's the point of having two creeds? Well, what's the point of having two creeds? Well, you're talking about the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed um, because there are actually more than two creeds. Those are our two probably most well-known and most used. Um, the two creeds developed independently. They are obviously consistent with each other. Um, they teach a lot of the same stuff. And to make a long story short, um, as the tradition developed, especially in the West, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Nicene Creed came to be the creed most often associated with the Eucharist, and the Apostles' Creed became the creed most often associated with baptism. So, And obviously the Rosary as well. So it just sort of played out that way. They're both useful. And, and you may know that you know um, in Mass it is possible to substitute the Apostles' Creed for the Nicene Creed, sometimes they do that. Although I'm always disappointed, but that's me. So uh, I like the Nicene Creed. Yes, Gene. Isn't there a warning in the Bible somewhere in the Scripture? I remember reading it that no one man should interpret the words Yeah, that's uh, it's in uh, the Peter letters, I believe First Peter. The uh, I'll paraphrase it, but it's something to the effect that the interpretation of Scripture is not a matter of of one person's opinion yeah and so the scriptures are translated in committees so it's not just one person's translation into english and then the creeds uh, well the nicene creed especially is a product of the the process of councils and bishops meeting in councils and so we have um we we have the the nicene creed as the um 
as the product of two ecumenical worldwide councils, and then we have something called the Chalcedonian Definition, which is not a creed, but sort of is, uh, that comes out of the next couple of councils. So, uh, yeah, we have those things that, again, are not a product of just one person's interpretation or even a small group, but, um, but uh, the community at large. So. Okay, so um, let's see, where are we here? We are in Thessalonica. And so, uh, oh no, we're in Berea now. We've moved on from, but in Thessalonica, some of the Thessalonian enemies of uh, Paul show up in Berea and stir up more trouble. Forgot to label this one. I don't know where that is. It's a nice picture of some place. Um... I am I yeah I don't know it's either Berea or Athens because that's where I'm going but uh, but anyway so uh, um, so so there's more trouble in Berea Paul is sent on Silas and Timothy stay in Berea for a little while and Paul goes to Athens and Athens of course is the capital of Greece it's also the capital of philosophy and so we've we've now made it to a certain point in other words. You know, we started, the gospel started in Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. Now we have gone to Greece, the capital of, I don't know, philosophy and, and Greek culture. We're going to get to Rome later, but we've, we've made it to Greece. And, um, and here, uh, Paul tries a new tactic, speaking directly to the Gentiles out in the open market. And we're, we're told that he spoke on the Areopagus, which uh, is translated means Mars Hill. And um, I'm led to believe that that is this hill in the foreground here in this picture. And the Acropolis in the background. And uh, Paul has noticed that in Athens they have a temple dedicated to an unknown god. In other words, they're so polytheistic, they want to hedge their bets, they want, they, they, there must be gods they don't know about, so we better put up a temple just to be safe. So they put up a temple to an unknown god. It's, I guess maybe a little like our you know, concept of a tomb of the unknown soldier, but I guess not the same. So he mentions that unknown god. He says, you, you obviously recognize there are gods you don't know about. Let me tell you about the god you don't know about. And he uses that as a way to talk about um, the Judeo-Christian god. But when he gets to the stuff about resurrection from the dead, he is mocked. And... Um, and this is because in, in Greco-Roman philosophy, most people didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. Most people believed in a kind of dualism that said that uh, you know, the things of the spiritual realm are good, or at least better, and the things of the physical realm are not as good or not as real. And so what you really hoped for in that kind of philosophical system, what you really hoped for was that in the afterlife, you would be freed from this prison of flesh and you would exist as a disembodied spirit, maybe to become one with the universe or whatever, but you really hoped for, for um, the, this existence as a disembodied spirit. And in, you know, in Plato and other Greek philosophies, if you didn't quite make it that far, you got reincarnated into another prison of flesh to try again. Um, and... So the Christian doctrine of resurrection and the resurrection of the body is antithetical to that. 
And this is why Paul will go on about that, especially like in places like 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and he will, he will say that you know, without the resurrection, our faith is worthless. Our resurrection depends on Jesus' resurrection, bodily resurrection. And if he is not raised, then our faith is in vain. And I would add, might as well sleep late on Sundays. Because what would be the point? But this is one of the main conflicts between early Christianity and philosophy. This idea or this belief in resurrection versus, uh, versus not believing it. And so when we get into the, the, uh, the second century later on, like after the first of the year, we're going to read some documents about resurrection where Christian apologists are defending the doctrine of the resurrection based on Paul. So, um, but what this says about Christianity is that Christianity is not a religion that dismisses the physical or, or that denigrates the body as somehow evil or bad, um, but that salvation includes the salvation of the physical aspects of our being. Now, what, don't ask me what a resurrection body is, because I don't know, but I, I do believe that, like Jesus our resurrection bodies will be consistent with ourselves now, but yet also somehow changed and different. I mean, I always think, you know, caterpillar and butterfly, but no one in the early church seems to have gone with that image, and I, I can't figure out why. It seems obvious to me. But anyway, point being that, um, you know, th- this is a hallmark of early Christian belief that set it apart from, from Greco-Roman philosophy. The, uh, that, that our bodily existence is a, an essential part of our humanity and it is not a part of us that gets left behind in salvation because our body is part of us that needs salvation and so our body is redeemed along with our, our soul or our spirit. Again, not quite sure what that means exactly, but I choose to believe it. Um, so salvation is not about shedding our physical humanity but about redeeming it. And so in the afterlife, we are whole humans, not disembodied spirits. And, um, and again, you know, we just look to Jesus' resurrection for some sort of hint about that, but that's about as far as it goes. Now, we read uh, that there was one person, at least one person among others, who believed in Paul's message in Athens. Um, oh yeah, can't keep a good man down. The res- resurrection of Jesus, right? <laughs> um, Dionysius is uh, sometimes called Dionysius the Areopagite because he is one who is said to have believed Paul's preaching from the Areopagus. Now, there are writings in the early church by, that claim to be by Dionysius the Areopagite, but because they're probably not and written much later, they are known as the writings of Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. So if you ever run across these, um, we can't really attribute them to this guy. But according to the tradition, this Dionysius believed Paul and then his teaching was passed down to a second century apologist named Athenagoras. Don't worry about writing that down now. Uh, I mean, it's the word Athens with agoras at the end. It doesn't matter. Um, Because we're going to meet him later and you're going to read one of his documents. Um, but I'm just pointing that out now so that you see that. Um, because Athenagoras is a guy who, according to the story, set out to disprove 
from philosophy. He wanted to disprove the Christian doctrine of resurrection. He was going to be writing against the Apostle Paul. And he thought, well, I guess I better read Paul's stuff before I write against So he read Paul's stuff and started to be convinced by it and was eventually converted to the faith, became an apologist for Christianity, and then wrote a document um, in favor of and, and supporting the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And so we're going to read some of that stuff. I just have a quick question. Yes. Didn't Yes, and, and that's going to factor in later in the book of Acts. The question was, didn't Pharisees already believe in resurrection? They did, but the Sadducees did not. So watch when you read later, when Paul's confronted by a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, he throws that out there and he says, I'm just being persecuted for my belief in the resurrection from the dead. And that sets the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other. Clever Paul. So we'll get to that. But yes, so the belief in the resurrection of the dead is a Jewish belief. It exists before Christianity, but not all Jews believed it. So, good point. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, anyway, that tradition about uh, Athenagoras comes from, you know, it's supposed to go back to this time when Paul preached um, in Athens. And, you know, on the surface, it appears like kind of a failure. And so, part of this tradition of of Dionysius and then Athenagoras may be a way to try to salvage Paul's ministry in Athens, um, because it, you know he seem, this seems to be the place where he doesn't have as much success. Um, but clearly, there uh, there there are Christians in Athens, and so there you know there's some some measure of success there. Um, from Athens, Paul went on to Corinth. And so you can see where we are here. Down the coast from Berea, there's Athens, and then over here to Corinth. And here's uh, Corinth today. The uh, again the the um, agora or the marketplace, the what would be the forum in a Roman city. And Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. And we can actually date this through archaeological evidence because an inscription was found mentioning. The same Gallio, the the Roman official, the proconsul, or governor as it's usually called, um, Gallio is mentioned in the text of of the book of Acts, and we find this inscription dating Gallio's um, proconsulship there to the year um, 51 and 52. So, basically, we can look at Paul's time in Corinth as right around the year 52. Um, if you read Greek, it's it's the name Gallio is right here. This look, looks like a little hangman. That's gamma or G. There's the A. What looks like an A without the cross beam is a capital lambda or L. So G A L L Omega for O. So there's Gallio's name right there. Um, we know that in about the year 52, the Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome. And apparently, there was some conflict going on among the Jewish community in Rome. And it may very well have been conflict between Christians who were Jews and and non-Christian Jews, but within the Jewish quarter of Rome, which at that time was Trastevere, across the river. Um... And so Claudius, see, you know, they, they're not quite aware of Christianity as a separate entity yet. They think it, if they know of it at all, they think of it as a, um, 
sect within Judaism. So from, from Claudius's perspective, the Jews are fighting among themselves. So what does he do? He kicks all Jews out of Rome. Now, in reality, did all Jews leave Rome? Of course not, because many of them would simply ignore um, you know, a pronouncement made in anger. Other Jews were slaves and belonged to Romans, so they're not going anywhere, right? But some of the Jews did leave Rome, and among those um, were the couple Aquila and Priscilla, whom we meet here in this icon. And uh, Paul meets them and works with them because it turns out they are also tent makers like Paul, so they work together. And uh, this is how Paul is able to support himself for a year and a half while he's staying in Athens. Uh, I mean, sorry, in Corinth. And um, it's also in Corinth that Silas and Timothy catch up to Paul. Yes, question. Uh, the question was, do archaeologists have any kind of idea what the population of these towns would have been? Um, you know, I believe that, that we do have ballpark figures. I didn't think to look that up, so I don't have it in my notes. But, um, but you could certainly Google that and look it up. Um, you know, these are, not, these are not huge towns. I mean, the, you know, the, the towns... I mean, Athens would be the, the biggest town that you know, we've been visiting here so far. But they're not anything like the... Um, like the population of Rome, which, you know, Rome is approaching a million probably by this time. So between the first century, between the first century and the third century, Rome probably goes from 500,000 to a million. Um, but uh, these would be smaller. Yeah. I think I read where Ephesus had 100,000 people, which surprised me. Yeah, that sounds about right. Ephesus would have, could have had about 100,000 people. Yeah, that sounds about right. The Christians are, are obviously a very small minority, um, you know, among those numbers. I just want to mention um, at this point that this is the time at which Paul writes the two letters back to the Thessalonians. So, First and Second Thessalonians are both written from Corinth in about the years fifty-one, fifty-two. Um, and so if you uh, took the time to read the Thessalonian letters too, you may have noticed that the Thessalonian Christians are facing persecution. And we obviously know that Paul and his group were hassled there. And, um, and so some of the Thessalonian Christians have died. Now, perhaps they were killed by persecutions. Perhaps they just died of natural causes. But in a, in a context where the Christians still think Jesus is coming back very soon, the Thessalonian Christians started to worry that Christians who have died are going to miss it. Right? So Jesus' second, Jesus second coming is coming. Um, but they've died, so they're going to miss it. They're going to miss out. They're not going to be there. And, and so Paul has to um, give them a sense of comfort about this. And um, so... First, he starts out by praising them for their faith and for their evangelism. And then he tells them to wait patiently. He says, wait for God's Son from heaven. So he's telling them to wait patiently in a sense that makes us think, Paul still thinks Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. But then Paul comforts them by saying, the dead will not miss the second coming. The day of the Lord 
is promised. And now, you know, the day of the Lord, that used to be an Old Testament concept when God would intervene in human history. Now the day of the Lord is the day of Jesus because Jesus is the Lord. So the day of the Lord is now the return of Jesus. I mean, in a sense, Jesus kind of split the concept of the day of the Lord in two where, you know, it sort of came when He came the first time, but it's not here yet. It's all tied up with the concept of the, the kingdom. It's here now, but it's not here. It's concealed. It will be revealed. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about, the revealing of the kingdom. And the day of the Lord then becomes the second coming of Christ. So, the day of the Lord is still coming. And it will be judgment for unbelievers, but it will be vindication for believers. Vindication, think, you know, in the context of persecution. And of course, it will mean eternal life. But Paul basically says, look, you know, don't worry that, that those who die in Christ will miss out on the second coming. They won't. They'll be right there with us. Now, I don't have time to get into this. It's all in, in Wedding of the Lamb. But um, this is one of the passages, this, this Thessalonian stuff is one of the places where people who believe in a rapture, that's where they get that. Um, but this text does not teach anything about a rapture because a rapture assumes a two-part second coming. Jesus comes once, takes a bunch of people away, only to come back later. The Bible does not teach that anywhere in the Bible. So, just to point that out, that if you ever find yourselves arguing with somebody over the concept of the so-called rapture, um, this is one of the places where they claim to be getting it. It's just not there. Alright, so anyway, to put that in context then, um, during Paul's time in Corinth is when he writes those two letters back to the Thessalonians to encourage them in their faith and to, to, um, to tell them it's okay to grieve, but we don't grieve like the unbelievers who grieve without hope. We grieve with hope, hope of eternal life. Now, um, in Corinth, Paul is rejected by the Jewish community. And based on that rejection, Paul seems to change his strategy. And um, now he's really going to focus on the Gentiles from here on out. And, and he's attacked again, and so he leaves Corinth, taking Aquila and Priscilla with him. From Corinth, he goes um, back through Ephesus, and then um, he's going to go back to Caesarea and Antioch. And I'll just show you, just to give you a taste, we're going to visit Ephesus again, but just to give you a taste, there's the famous library of Ephesus. And this is, the, uh, this is a statue of the goddess Artemis. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to probably beat her again too, but uh, Artemis is um, the Greek equivalent of the Roman goddess Diana, who, among other things, is the goddess of childbirth. So, yeah, those are what you think they are. Um, but uh, Ephesus was known as, you know... The, as a pilgrimage place for devotees of Artemis. And she is known as the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. And I'll just give you this hint and then we're going to be done for the day. But I just want to say, that, you know, on the one hand, this is going to be a big issue between Christians and pagans because Christians are going to be asking the Ephesians to trade in their, their Artemis for for Christ, 
And not only will that be successful, but Ephesus is going to shift in the next couple hundred years from a pilgrimage place of the mother goddess, Artemis, to a pilgrimage place of the mother of God, the Virgin Mary. And so um, you may know this, but according to tradition, Ephesus is where John took Mary and where Mary lived out the rest of her life after um, the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll talk more about that later. But I think, yeah, this just is uh, the last little bit here, the map. I know this is hard to see, but um, the second journey is in uh, this, this purpley color, so you can kind of see it. But anyway, so, th- so that's enough for today. Now, um, for next week, you're going to read chapters 19 to 22. And, um, the, and, and we're going to look at the third missionary journey. Also, if you have time, I highly encourage you to read Paul's letters to the Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans also. I know it's a lot of reading, but sometimes when we read little bits... We, we, we lose the big picture. So this gives you a chance to see the big picture and get the scope of it all. So if you have time, do that. And, um, and that'll be it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.